Bright Metal Audio presents The Blood Miles by Andrew Moody, read by the author. Volume 1, Chapter 10 Eve and Predica worked together to ease me into a fresh shirt before leading me out through the door to a spiral staircase of dark grey metal. The room above was a large, ring-shaped observation deck, featuring big windows that looked out toward the eastern foothills. In the centre of the ring, storerooms and a wedge-shaped kitchen supported a raised mezzanine, where monitors and lights flickered and blinked. The whole structure was built of massive steel beams, filled in with the same perfectly fitted natural stone that I'd seen elsewhere. "'That's the base of the main dish,' said Prediger, as he saw me looking toward the upper level. "'I'll take you up to the monitors after you've eaten. I suspect Prax will want to show you a thing or two. "'In the meantime, sit and eat, and tell us a bit more about your story. I'm sure Eve is as eager as I am to hear the rest of it.' We took our places at his long wooden table, while he went back and forth from the kitchen, bringing out loaves of fresh flatbread, olives and cheese along with a pitcher of clear water. And I began to tell them about all the things that had happened to me since I had met Eve and the discovery of the thing on my neck, and to my adventures in Ockham and the mountains. They were most interested in the part where the man showed up and rescued me at Horeb. And he didn't tell you his name, said Eve. No, I said, or where he'd come from. Do you know who it was? Not for sure, but the spit thing makes me think. It sounds like Tobias, said Prediger, setting down a pot of spiced lentil soup. Who's that? I said. Tobias Shepherd, the envoy, said Prediger. The guy whose blood's in the cure. That's right. Of course, there's more to him than that, but yes. Then Prediger told me a bit more about the history of the war. He told me about how the Pantark had trained up loyalists to establish resistance cells across the territory, all of which kept failing as the tox derailed their minds. He told me about how Central had developed codes of self-discipline and martial arts to combat the disease, and how the program produced a few champions before the Loyalists gave up on it. He talked about how the Pantark had finally sent his own man into the Territory, how the Council's men had caught him and killed him, how Central had brought him back to life and rebuilt his body and put him in charge of everything. It all pretty much washed over me. I caught enough for it to sound familiar when I heard it again later, but I didn't really understand the significance of any of it. Even when Prediger explained that the envoy had negotiated a full pardon for everyone in the AZ who would swear allegiance, information that would have saved me a lot of grief if I'd taken it in, I still didn't really get it. I was too tired, and still too distracted by what I'd heard while they were dressing my wound. It was almost dark by the time we'd finished eating. The sun was edging down behind the base, and through the windows I could see the sides of the hills lit up by a wash of yellow light. Below and beyond, the rest of the land faded away into shadow. "'Now, young man,' said Prediger, when he'd finished clearing the table, "'let's go up and see if our host has anything to show you.' I stood up and followed him to the stairs. "'I thought you were our host.' "'No, no, I'm more like cook and caretaker. This place was built for Prax to maintain the Pantark's operations in the Territory.' The control station up on the mezzanine featured rings of video screens and control panels. Above, seven small skylights in the low ceiling looked up to the underside of the dish that was now just a silhouette against the starry sky. Prediger sat me down in front of one of the screen banks, where images of roads, towns, encampments and individuals flickered and cycled. 
I saw a column of men and women in overalls being marched along a road by guards in dark uniforms. I saw a vast tent-like structure with lights shining through it. But before I had time to make sense of any of these images, the twelve monitors directly in front of me went black and then flickered back on as a unified display. Suddenly I was looking at a high-definition aerial shot of a huge truck barreling across a dusty plain. As the camera pulled in, my heart started pounding. The tray of the vehicle was full of ragged men carrying spears and swords. One of them held up a red flag. I twisted in my chair, wanting to ask Prediger about what I was watching, but he was busy at another terminal. When I turned back, my question was answered. The camera went wide again, and there was the road to Spillen, and there was the agent's van racing ahead. And now it was like I was reliving it. I saw the flash as my first shot struck the armoured ram. I waited through the long seconds of the failed round, then as the camera zoomed in front of the truck, I saw my last shot tear a chunk out of the top edge of the tray. Then two things happened at the same time. The first was that a kind of overlay suddenly appeared superimposed on the video. Numbers appeared, moving across the top and side of the image. A white square flashed and blinked over the truck, just at the point where the tray went over the driver's cabin. As the truck bounced and swerved, the square moved with it as if it was stuck to the one spot. A light began to blink in one corner of the screen, and a tiny but super bright dot of light appeared in the centre of the square. The square began to move across the roof, and the dot went with it. Now the truck started swerving, rocking violently as if the driver was trying to get away from it, and I realised that was exactly what was happening. The drone or skyship, or whatever it was that had captured this footage, had fired a beam weapon to force the truck to turn. So it wasn't me, I said to myself out loud. It wasn't you, Chris Walker, said someone. I jerked forward and almost fell out of my chair. Who had just spoken? The voice was massive, like thunder echoing around the mountains, but it had also sounded close up, like someone whispering in my ear. I looked around, but all I could see was Prediger sitting with his back to me, acting as if he hadn't heard a thing. Are you Prax? I said, turning back to the screen. I am, said the voice. Who are you? I am the ghost in the machine, the carrier of the signal, the voice of the Pantarch. As he spoke, the image was replaced by another. Now we were looking at an aerial shot of a ruined town. In the centre of the frame, as the image zoomed in, I could see a man moving about in the shell of what must have once been a really solid building with thick brick walls, but now the roof was gone, and some of the walls were just stubs. The patterned paving that the man was standing on seemed to be the last undamaged part of the structure. The man picked up a sledgehammer and began to smash the floor. The red, freckled skin on his bare back and arms glistened as the hammer rose and fell and rose and fell. "'Do you recognise this man?' said the voice. For a while I didn't. The man kept working. He paused to clear away the larger chunks of stone as the pavement broke up. But when he paused to wipe his neck with a handkerchief, he turned his face up toward the sun, and then it was a face I knew. Is that my uncle? Yes, it is. You were eight years old when this footage was captured. What's he doing? He was attempting to break into an old bank vault. He was always hunting for treasure. What happened to him? He died of thirst not long after this. We sent an agent to try and help him but he was fixated and would not be turned aside from his goal. I watched as the man went back to attacking the concrete. 
It seemed so clear and real, like I could call out to him and he might hear me. I felt a sudden wave of sadness for him and for my mum and for all the people I'd seen come and go. Why are you showing me this? I said. So that you will understand the nature of things and the futility of the way of life that has been handed down to you. So you can see the nature of the choice that you are facing. Why didn't you force him to stop? I said. Why didn't Central or the Envoy or whatever? Because we are not in the business of making slaves. The screen flashed again, and there was another image. Now it was a green bus speeding along a rutted road through a field of yellow flowers. As the camera tracked around to the side, I could see that something had torn away one side of the vehicle. Some of the metal skin had been peeled back and was scraping along the ground. I could also see people inside the bus. There was the driver, a big man with dark hair, olive skin and a coat that looked like Eve's. In the seats behind him I could see others, another man in a coat with his face turned to look behind, a small woman in overalls with her head down being held by a tall woman in a dark jacket. You will have trouble beyond Crux, said Prax. The men who stopped you in the canyon and the corp that pays them are desperate to preserve their little kingdom. They and their machines will do whatever they can to stop you. But if you fix your sights on Central, trust the envoy and travel with friends. You will get through. I didn't say anything in response. At that moment I wasn't sure I would ever go to Central, or even Crux for that matter. But the image juddered, and scrubbed forward at speed, racing ahead of the bus, along the road, over plains and forests and small villages. It zoomed through a valley and suddenly slowed down over a shanty town of tin and timber. There was smoke drifting up in straight columns and in the distance, above the rickety roof lines, I could see a silhouette of towers and the sun shining on silver water. What's this? I said. This is the Beulah refugee camp. The last stop before Central. Now it looks like a slum. It does. But listen. And now I could hear the sounds of the place. The sound of the wind and dogs barking and distant engines and a hammer. But there was singing too. The camera went sideways and tracked down an alley and came out into a clear area between the huts. I could see old people and people on crutches and children with waxy skin and dark circles under their eyes. Some of the people had bound up stumps for arms or legs, but many of them were smiling. In the centre of the space, an elderly woman and a hunchback were dishing out food from a large pot. A ragged couple sat on a step, looking at a book together. There was a man weeping and other people comforting him. Then the drone ducked under an awning, zoomed over a line of washing and emerged from between the houses to track along a wide dock. I could hear the water lapping and seabirds calling, and across the water I could see the towers of sanctuary rising up above tall trees, as if the place was a forest as well as a city. Why does Central make people wait before going to the city? They have to be scanned first, said Prax. What kind of scan, I said, remembering what Bird had said and what Prediger had confirmed. A brain scan, said the voice. If the cure has taken hold, it will show up there. Look. As he spoke, the drone turned and began to follow the shoreline. Its view passed over half-submerged roofless ruins, wrecked boats and a muddy road. Then the ground along the river got a bit higher, and the drone tracked around it, pulling back from the water's edge. Suddenly I could see the mouth of a tunnel. It was a massive thing, rust-red and shaped like a square funnel that plunged down into the hill toward the river. 
On the gravel road that led up to it, there was a line of people. They were generally old, I guess, but I could see quite a few kids and people of other ages too. Most of them looked pretty worse for wear, some bent over and staggering, though one old couple were laughing like they were sharing a joke. Then the camera went over their heads, right into the shadow of the funnel, and for about twenty seconds it was too dark to see anything. When the camera adjusted, it was looking down on a dimly lit room. I could see guards in grey uniforms escorting an elderly man in a medical robe. They came to a small pool with dark water in it, and a big curved view screen at the far end. The guards removed the man's gown and helped him lie down in the water. Straight away, images began playing on the screen. At the speed they were playing, they were just impressions or fragments. I saw a little boy tipping over a baby's pram, the same boy killing a bird, a teenager carrying a child with an injured leg, and again, walking away from a weeping girl. Then there was an older version of the same person walking down a road with a few others. Older again now, he was sharing food with a beggar in a rickety ghost town. What are they looking for? I said. This time it was Prediger who answered. They're cross-checking the surveillance record of his journey against what they're reading off his brain, trying to see if there's any sign of the X-vector, that's the cure, at work. If there is, it'll show up on that dark panel on the right. And if it stays dark, what does that mean? It means he's never been treated. He's just been pretending, maybe even to himself. Some people think they can get into Central by hiding details of their old lives or the extent of their infections. I sat absolutely still, hearing the blood in my ears as the images continued. I wanted to ask what would happen to the old man in the dark room if he failed the test, but I was afraid what my voice would do if I tried to say the words. I didn't find out by watching either. Before the scan was finished, the screens in front of me went dark, and then back to the way they were, different views of different places. Is that all? I said. Looks like it, said Prediger behind me. Come on now, and I'll show you where you can sleep. You'll be getting up early, and you should get as much rest as you can. I got out of the chair and followed him back to the top of the stairs that led down from the mezzanine, but as I turned to go down, my eye caught a flash from the monitors. Then I had to hold on to the railing as the world began to spin. Because there on the array was the single image of a kid, a kid scrambling along the side of an old railway line, a kid stooping to collect rocks from the grass between the tracks, a kid running down an embankment toward an old riverbed. As soon as I saw it, I knew I wouldn't be staying the night, because that kid was me.